Welcome to the MHA Corner Podcast, where we discuss news and developments in the post-acute space. Today, we'll join Jennifer and Tom Maxwell, co-founders of Maxwell Healthcare Associates, on a special fireside chat. They'll discuss the final rule issued by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services that includes updates and policy changes for Medicare payments under the physician fee schedule. They'll unpack the final rule and provide guidance on what your agency can do to prepare for 2023. I'm Tom Maxwell. I'm the chairman of the board for Maxwell Healthcare Associates and one of the co-founders with Jennifer Maxwell. Um, by way of background, I spent a lot of time in the home health and hospice space uh, over 10 years as the chief operating officer and chief strategy officer for Home Care Home Base. In 2016, I um, actually physically retired and uh, decided to uh, play golf and have some fun. Jennifer and I uh, got bored with that and started uh, Maxwell Investment Partners and Maxwell Healthcare Associates. Um, quickly, uh, Maxwell Healthcare Associates is a consulting company in the industry that's consulting um, in the um, across the whole industry, uh, we, we focus a lot on the upper or larger uh, home care and hospice agencies, but we have some agencies that are startups or, uh, you know, five or six patients. I also sit as the non-executive chairman of the board for Muse Healthcare, uh, which is uh, was purchased by Metalogix in, uh, two years ago. That business is really focused around um, using uh, machine learning and data science and predictive analytics to predict when hospice patients are going to decline or when home health patients are uh, declining and look like they're going to go back in the hospital. Early adopters and board member for Trella Health. Trella Health is a CMS claims company that uses uh, the claims data to predict and identify uh, where referral sources are coming from, hospitalization rates. On the hospice side, they look at long length of stay, short length of stay, and HCI scores. And last, I'll just add in that uh, I've also been an investor in multiple home care and hospice agencies, um, some like Mission Home Care and Hospice, St. Croix, Hospice, as well as Hospice Care of South Carolina and Agape Care of South Carolina. I'll flip it over to Jennifer and then we're going to jump into the role here. So Jennifer, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, Jennifer Maxwell here, obviously co-founder of and CEO of Maxwell Healthcare Associates. Also co-founder and um, was president of Muse Healthcare prior to our um, merge with Metalogics. I am a strategic advisor for Metalogics today, as well as an investor and on the board of Element 5, which is a robotic process automation company that helps to automate workflows to speed up the back office work, as well as being able to provide the um, automation for workflow automation for clinicians in the field and in the back office to be able to do their jobs better and to be able to provide better care. We at Maxwell Healthcare Associates really take pride in partnering with organizations with technologies that help to assist, aid, provide efficiencies, automations, as well as being able to ultimately give the tools to the clinicians in the field to be able to be at the bedside and be more present for patient outcomes and care planning outcomes, as well as in the back office, being able to automate those things that are non-patient facing that are the laborious components to the regulatory compliance and conditions of participation. So we're excited here today to kind of talk through and give you high level of what has happened in the space. As we all know, we have been waiting anxiously for this rule to come out. And now here we are. So Tom, I'm gonna let you start it off with just kind of the high level of the rule. And then we can jump into what are some of the things that we wanna talk about? Um, how do we help our clients and our partners in the industry be able to navigate this? 
Yeah, so we're going to do this as a little bit of a fireside chat. My goal is not to read the rule to you. Um, I think not. Uh, the Partnership for Quality Home Health, which Jennifer and I both sit on the board of, um, as well as every other analyst in the industry has read the rule to you or, or provide you with the documentation. I'm going to give you my interpretation of the rules and then how we're going to uh, mitigate this or things that you need to be thinking about as an organization versus just me sit here and read the rule to you. And hopefully you guys, if you haven't seen the rule and you want to, you want us to email it to you, happy to do that. Um, so Halloween night, we all got the rule quite an impact, quite a change. Um, you know, everybody came out and said, Hey, we were going to get a 7.8% cut and then turned right around and we got a little bit less of a cut um, from CMS. Um, but they did put in their disclosures that this was just a, uh, a, a small percentage of the future cuts that are coming. So we, we do believe that we're not out of the woods yet. Um, we're still working with uh, Congress and the Senate to figure out what's going to happen with those future cuts. But for today, we got a little bit of a buy. Um, as far as the rule, um, you know, they proposed a 7.69% uh, permanent rate adjustment. Um, they came back to us and said, hey, we're going to reduce that by half. And essentially what, what's going to happen is it's about a 3.925% reduction um, in, our, in our payment rates. Again, way better than, you know, almost 8%, but, um, you know, not as good as we were hoping for at least to, uh, to relook at the rates, um, to relook at their methodology of how they're calculating these behavioral health adjustments. One thing I want to explain, because people always ask me uh, when I, as I travel around the country and, and, and talk to different agencies, what is a behavioral adjustment? And so behavioral adjustment is when they put out the PDGM rule, they said that agencies were going to change their behaviors, just like it sounds. You're going to change your behavior. You were going to do less therapy visits. You were going to code differently. You were going to change your behavior. And so that behavioral adjustment was really based on CMS prediction of what you were going to do. What they forgot to do is a factor that we were going to be in COVID. We're going to be in a crisis. We're going to be in an absolute crisis. I mean, if you look at the home health and hospice community, but this rule is really focused on home health, home health agencies were still seeing patients. We were still caring for nanas and papas in the home when hospitals were closed, when doctor's offices were closed. Somebody had to continue to care for these patients. So what CMS, I think, is as a whole forgot to do is evaluate that, you know, in the data they were looking at, that we were going to have all these behavioral adjustments. But we also had major behavioral adjustments. We had to don, you know, all the gear in order to go into a patient's home. We had to wear a mask. We had to go buy masks. We had to find masks. Matter of fact, uh, Jennifer and I were in Scottsdale when uh, the uh, when the COVID hit, and when when the real freak out of masks. And you guys all remember this, where you had to go to masks. I remember driving to Home Depot every single day and to the local paint stores every single day, trying to figure out if they had any N95 masks. And if they did, I gave the guy $100 and said, save them for me because we wanted to ship them to our customers. So instead of the guys that were getting them for, you know, using them for painting, those guys were all secure and not, and not painting anymore. We we're trying to find those masks so that we could ship them to our healthcare partners so that they could go see the patients in the home. So we're in a real crisis. Yes, we had a behavioral adjustment. Absolutely everything about the home care and hospice business has changed. A few other things in the rule that I think are really important. A positive is we don't have to complete OASIS on every single patient. Um, in the proposed rule, it came out that the government was going to force you to do an OASIS on every single patient, regardless of the payer. Um, they've delayed that portion of the rule. They saw the impact that was going to cost in the, in the range of $220 million of impact to the agencies because they had to go change their processes and, and, uh, and, and their EMRs and update their software and all those kind of things. So they delayed that as 257 million is what they, what they uh, expect that change to be. Um, but do know that's coming in 2025, right? So we're gonna have to, we're gonna face that again, 
But in 2023, we don't have to worry about that. They did not delay Oasis E, so that's still coming. So just so you know, that's coming quickly. And uh, you, if you're not ready for it already, you need to start getting ready for it. You have, uh, as of November 2nd, you have 60 days to get ready for that. Um, other areas that they really modified, they modified the loop of threshold. What does that mean? So when you modify the Lupa threshold, you're essentially saying, what does it take to become a Lupa? Is how many visits does it take to become a Lupa? By then modifying that Lupa threshold, you may have thought before, if you did five visits in the first period and three in the second period, you wouldn't be a Lupa. You might be now. So you need to be, you need to be working with your EMR to make sure you're, st you're studying that and understand the rules around Lupa threshold modification. If not, there's times when you think that you're doing the right amount of care that the patient needs and you could be getting reimbursed, you know, somewhere in the, in the range of uh, $1,800 less than you thought. Um, other areas, they, they instituted a 5% cap on negative changes in area specific wage indexes. What does that mean? Certain areas of the country, everywhere in the country has a wage index. And so that's kind of the, the modifier they use to calculate your payment. And a wage index in a rural community may be way different than a wage index in a uh, suburban community. And so they modified these, but they also put a 5% cap on that. But remember, the cap wasn't for last year. The cap is for 23. And so some areas of the country, I know one in Ohio, for example, um, some down in Florida, some down in Texas and California had a 7 or 8% swing around wage indexes. And then you take an additional 5%. So you're making 12% less money um, on a patient that you saw in southern Florida than you would make on a patient that you saw in South Carolina or Mississippi or Georgia. And so really studying that and understanding those wage indexes in the table, and they did publish a table for you, you need to do the impact analysis on that because it may be really expensive for you to see patients in that area, or you may have to change some of your behaviors. And we'll talk about that here in a couple of minutes of uh, some of the things we think you should be working on right now in order to, to mitigate some of these uh, payment reductions. Um, if you look at table 17 in the rule, um, just to highlight, um, without the wage index adjustments, it's the national standardization 30-day uh, period payment amounts. So in 2022, the 30-day period payment amount was $2,031.64. You put in the behavioral adjustment of 0.96075. You add in the case, make, case, weight, uh, case mix weight recalibration neutrality factor, which they always add in, 0.9904 plus the wage index budget neutrality factor, which is 1.0001. Now you get a uh, 23 home health payment aid update of 1.04. And so when you really look at that as a whole, the exact same patient that you saw in 2022 at $2,031 for the 30 day period payment is now $2,010.69. So that's where that really the negativity of, of uh, that rate cut comes from. Okay, also take a look if you get a chance at table 19, that's your per visit payment amount. You can see the reduction like in home health aids, they increased it a little bit, but um, you know, across the board, it looks like they're trying to increase that per visit payment amount. But remember, we're all dealing with the 30 day payment period amounts. Those are the big highlights. Uh, they expanded the home health value-based purchasing model. Um, they expanded that a little bit. So go take a look at that. That's gonna become important. Um, they're also going to put a, a new conforming regulation change out to 484.350B and C. So that's part of the Medicare handbook. So go take a look at those for sure. And then they're also um, requesting some G codes be added in. And the G codes are really related to uh, 
care that's being provided virtually, telephonically, or a combination of those. And so those G codes, essentially what the government's saying is we know people are providing telehealth, telemedicine, or remote patient monitoring. And so if you're doing that, you're gonna to have to add in a specific G code that says you did that visit remotely, or you did that visit over a phone call, or you did it through remote patient monitoring. Remember, do not forget this. They are not changing the reimbursement. Those visits do not count as visits. Those visits do not count towards your loop of thresholds. Those visits do not count towards your outlier thresholds. They're just trying to capture when you're doing these. So if you're doing 14 visits for a patient and you do one of them virtually, then you're still doing 13 visits for that patient. It doesn't count as 14 visits. So make sure that's clear to everybody. Um, there was some confusion in the rule, uh, uh, the proposed rule, and they've kind of clarified it in this rule. I always say there's a reason why Medicare starts capturing this data. They're starting to look at it, they're starting to understand it, and they're gonna make adjustments in the future for it. So they're now requiring you to capture this data. So not that it's a bad thing. I think it's great if you can do virtual visits with your patients. Uh, we saw that that worked great in COVID, but uh, you know I think it's important for us to, to make sure you guys understand that. The other thing I would say on that particular topic is the EMR providers. Um, need to get ready for that because um, they're saying the data collection of the G codes would begin voluntary on January 1st of 23, but be mandatory on claims as of July 20, uh, 23. So that's, you know, six months away, we're gonna have to be ready to, to send those G codes in. So all the EMR vendors out there, if you're listening to this, please uh, get ready because it's gonna take some time. I wanna flip over, that's the highlights of the rule. Again, negative, we're gonna continue to push it. We're gonna continue to talk to CMS. We're going to continue to uh, get, you know, all the senators and congressmen that have signed up to uh, to uh, participate in the, the kind of the rule mitigation strategies. Um, you know, we're going to continue to push that. But let's get down to the brass tacks of things and how are we going to address this? Right? What are we going to do differently today? What are things that Maxwell Healthcare is seeing with our customers and, um, and that, that are going to help you mitigate this rule? So what are things people are doing? So I'll walk through a few of these. Jennifer, please, um, you know, pipe in as we're talking through some of these. Jumping in, the wage index analysis, absolutely. If you're using home care, home base, they do a pretty good job around um, creating the final rule analysis for you, where it takes your 2022 patients and, um, and pretends like those patients were being seen in 23 and what the impact of that's going to be. Taking all the wage analysis, the rate cuts, the lupa strategies, and all those into play. So definitely look at that. If you need help understanding it, please call me. I'm happy to walk you through it uh, personally or anybody on our team can help you with that as well. That's a big area. If you're not on home care home base and you're on a different EMR uh, and you want to start looking at this analysis, we're happy to help you walk you through that too. Uh, I don't know if the other, uh, I think NetSmart does a tool as well as WellSky. So happy to walk you through that tool and really look at the strategy around that. Areas that we're spending a ton of time on right now is payer profitability. So if your Medicare rate and reimbursement is dropping, and we're also seeing, and you probably heard the Inhabit, and Metasys, and LHC, and all these guys talking about their new Medicare Advantage strategies, their new different payer strategies, how they're trying to take risk or go at risk with different um, providers. We're starting to spend a lot of time looking at this. And, and so it's one thing to say that they're gonna pay me $150 a visit, and it's gonna cost me $120 a visit, and I'm gonna make $30 a visit each time. Hmm, that's a pretty good contract. But if the back office burden of that contract cost me $200, I just lost a lot of money. And so really what we're spending a lot of time doing is understanding what the back office burden is for each payer, what the profitability for each payer is, and understanding how difficult is it for you to take that particular uh, insurance plan. 
It's no different than when you go to the doctor. The first question out of your doctor's mouth is, who's your, who's your insurance payer? Because those guys have specific fee schedules. The hospitals have specific fee schedules. And, and they're trying to figure out how do we care for you appropriately where we don't go out of business. And so the payer profitability uh, strategies that Maxwell's looking at is, is absolutely going into uh, the raw data, pulling out the actual effort it takes for you to see these patients, as well as the cost associated with that effort to figure out is a reimbursement rate that you're getting from the payer um, appropriate and, and actually it's going to make you at least profitable by a little bit of money. And so that strategy, we're spending a ton of time on it. Um, lots of customers are calling us about it as we're looking at, you know, the difference between MA and um, fee-for-service Medicare or per visit and, and fee-for-service Medicare. We have to understand that. The other thing I'll tell you there is most people will tell you that they have to take these other payers in order to get the Medicare business or the, the higher profitability businesses. We're studying that very closely. It's not always the, the case. So, you know, if you take this patient, we'll give you eight Medicare's. Or if you take this, we'll give you more of this type of patient. That always doesn't happen. Um, and so studying that portion of it and being able to put that into your statistical analysis is really important. And I'd like to you know add to that. Not only is it just about payer profitability strategies in and of itself, we're also looking at and what we're noticing with a lot of our clients across the nation is this is an opportunity for contract renegotiation. And, and I say that very strongly. A lot of times um, the organizations that we're working with typically don't monitor their contract strategies as well. And now with something as significant of this happening, while yes, we're not seeing the full burden hit in 2023, we do need to get ready and prepare for that. And having those conversations up front, leveraging data, um, data analysis and benchmarking such as Trella data and things like that to show where you are both at a a county level, a state level, and a national level to really be able to prove your case to these payers and show that you are providing the best quality outcomes is going to be super important go forward. Yeah, that's a good point. Oasis C preparedness. I think it's going to be super important that you, your team understands the impact of Oasis C. Value-based care measures are coming. Um, that that's part of the Oasis C strategy. Um, have you taught your QAQI people or your Oasis reviewers all about Oasis C and the impact of that? And don't forget those tweener episodes, I call them. That's an episode that started under Oasis D and ends under Oasis E. How are you going to handle those? What's your reporting look like? When you really look at your quality reporting, how are you going to handle those scenarios? So making sure that you um, are one, training your staff on Oasis E and making sure they completely understand it. And this is all your starter care people, all your Oasis reviewers, probably your clinical field staff supervisors, whatever you call that person in the branch that looks at Oasis, they need to understand it really well. The other piece I would say is just the validations that are being built in the software. If I'm validating Oasis to Oasis questions, that's one thing. But if I'm validating Oasis to other questions, like for example, um, use the question around ambulation. If I say in one part of my record that the patient can walk five feet and I say over here they can't, that should be a validation that's created. Those are easy to create if you understand how to do it. But if, if you're not creating those uh, Oasis validations in the field and having a field clinician um, you know, get that validation on uh, on her screen and, and or his screen and making that change, then uh, you have somebody in the back office that's doing it and your labor in the back office is going to be a lot higher because they're, they're simply making those changes that have to be sent back out to the nurse to validate. I would also say in that vein too, when it comes to the Oasis-E, what we're seeing too is 
really this is now the time to really develop that QAPI program and really be following it to the nth degree. And we know that a lot of our clients across the nation, and I'm sure many of you listening to this today, feel the pressure of this that, that QA, that QAPI component, and having not having a full team to be able to devote the time and the effort to that. So looking to really find a partner in the space to be able to help you with that, don't hesitate to reach out to us. We have uh, a really good QAPI program as well as an ongoing um, train to proficiency as, as you build up your QAPI team, but really making sure that that effort is in place and that um, documentation education is really of the utmost key effort to your clinicians out in the field. And the next one on my list is uh, LUPA management. So really, how do you, what are you doing to understand not only at the start of care, are you, are you creating a LUPA, but if your nurse is missing a visit or your therapist is missing a visit, that's making that patient a LUPA, um, how are we controlling that? What are we doing? What, what uh, funnels are we putting that through? Um, we're seeing this more and more as people are, uh, as clinicians in the field are moving from you know, pushing the visit to another day, right? We're overwhelmed, we don't have enough clinicians. So I can't see my patient on Wednesday, so I'm gonna move it to Thursday. And then the office calls and says, I need you to take another start of care. So I move that visit to Friday and then Friday I don't get to it, so I miss that visit. Having that missed visit causes a lot of problems, but it can turn you into a lupa too. You had intention to do that visit, you should have done that visit. For whatever reason, something got in the way and you didn't do that visit, now you lose $1,800 or $1,500, whatever that number is depending on uh, the HHRG or the revenue of that patient. And so lupa management is gonna become really, really crucial. If you talk about you know rate cuts of uh, you know three plus percent, if you have a ton more lupas that get created under the new lupa rules, that rate cut of 3% could become seven or 8% if you start losing money off the top end. Again, those are uh, areas that we can help you with. Uh, there's lots of tools in the industry. And the Metalogics Pulse product is an example, not to plug that one, but you know, like I said, Jennifer and I are investors in it. That product really highlights this very easily and well, but then also just making sure you're really studying the missed visits. Like it, it, it's an area that I'm spending a ton of my time on um, is understanding why people are missing visits. These are homebound patients and the patient didn't answer the door. There's a problem with that. And so if we're knocking on the door or we're not knocking on the door correctly, or you know we're not calling ahead the day before, or maybe on the way to the visit, if the patient's not home, they're supposed to be homebound. So. There's reasons why patients lose their home and it's okay, but we need to make sure that these missed visits are going away. On average, 10% of all visits are missed. And so if we can eliminate that and get that down to, you know, three or four or 5%, then we're going to uh, help mitigate these rate cuts. If I paid somebody $120 or $115 to drive across town to go see a patient, I'm talking all in cost, mileage, caregiver, staff, fees, all that and they knock on the door and the patient's not there and then that patient turns into a lupa that really got expensive. Mm -hmm. And so mitigation of missed visits is, 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 is something that I think every or, uh, organization should focus on. The other part of missed visits is every time you miss a visit in, in the systems that are out there, you have to write an order for it. That's another order the doctor has to sign. And so now he has a start of care to sign. He has a couple of medication orders he needs to sign, maybe some supply orders he needs to sign and he's got five missed visit orders. So now you've just frustrated that physician even more because now he's signing all these orders for you and they were done because your your team was unable to to go to those visits. And so really focusing on your missed visit strategy, I think is a super important part and it will help you save some money. The other area is uh, provider optimization. 
So how often are we sending an RN to a visit when we could add an LPN there? And there's tools in each one of these EMRs that help you with this. Or how often am I sending a physical therapist when I could send a physical therapy assistant? And so we used to call this working at the top of your license. An LPN is working at the top of her license, should be able to do most of those things. There are visits that RNs are required to do, starts of care, research, those kind of things. When we can recruit an LPN, we should be recruiting LPN. Same thing with PTAs and PTs. Again, it's a big part of the strategy or how do I send um, the right caregiver to the patient's home in order to um, um, optimize my uh, care for the patient as well as my revenue so we can stay in business. The next area that we're spending the majority of my time on uh, these days is around centralization. And it's centralization of the back office process, um, really looking at the people in the branches that are touching, and I call it nurse care and nana care. The people that are working with the nurses or the clinicians that are reaching out, working with them on case conference and um, in, in care management of those patients, that's what I call nurse care. The people that are actually taking care of Nana, that's Nanacare. Nanacare is the nurse in the field taking care of Nana. And so how do we look at every single branch and figure out the people in the branch and the jobs that they're doing, the workflow that they're touching is focused on nurse care and Nanacare. Everything else we're trying to centralize or we're working with our customers to centralize. And if you really start diving deep into what they call, the, some people call them a clinical field staff supervisor, nurse supervisor, whatever, the person in the back office who's doing all the 485 workflow, the evaluation documentation workflow, the orders processing workflow, all those things where they're doing that approval process, those people's job is really crucial and important to the organization. And if you look at the amount of workflow that's being piled on these um, individuals, um, it, it, it will actually upset you. And then you think about what happens in home care. On Thursday afternoon, we have a really busy day. Friday, we get a whole bunch of referrals. We go do those referrals. Saturday and Sunday, those referrals are all getting piled up and pulled in. And then on Monday morning, when I walk back into the office, because I don't work seven days a week, on Monday morning, when I walk into the office, I have an exorbitant amount of workflow that I need to process. And everybody's waiting on me to process that workflow. So what happens? I end up rushing, right? And so I rush as fast as I can to do my job on Monday and Tuesday, finally get caught back up on Wednesday, maybe do a few case conferences on Wednesday, Thursday hits, and we're back in the same cycle. And so really focusing on how do we remove as many possible obstacles for the, the clinical field staff supervisor or that person in your organization who's doing that workflow and really doing Nanacare and nurse care. How do we solve that for them and make their role easier, but as well as make sure we're staying compliant. And so centralization around that is a, is a big area of, of Maxwell's focus. And I would say that that correlates directly to uh, agencies being businesses as well. So the impact of that clinician not being able to get that work workflow pushed through, um, get to the um, locked oasis, get to sub claim submission really does then um, impact your DSO. Right. And that impacts payroll that impacts paying potential bonuses for clinicians going above and beyond all of those. We end up um, kind of impacting the, the business as a, as a holistic look. Right. So from the bedside to the to even that clinician who's providing the care at the bedside and lack of provider satisfaction, as well as the lack of family satisfaction. So HCAP scores, all of those things are gonna come into play if we don't learn to optimize, automate, and centralize those components. We'll go through a few more of these I think that are really important. Dealing with non-emits and intucks. So not taking under care is what an intuck is, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with that term, or not admits. 
Doctor refers patient to, or hospital refers patient to home health agency. We go out, we evaluate the home health uh, patient and home, home health patient doesn't want, um, that doesn't want our care or it, which is an impact of the Intux are, uh, are an area that most agencies don't do a good job of following up on. I'm actually looking at, um, looking at multiple different ways to solve this for agencies, either through tech or, or other things. But the, the whole intuck thing had a nurse that went out to see a patient and the patient wasn't ready for home health or even in hospice, they weren't ready for hospice. And so they come back in as a non-admit, but who's following back up with that patient to make sure that they get the right care they need, make sure that it just wasn't a bad day for them. We're doing a lot of work around these intucks and then, and just changing the, the messaging that comes from the clinician that's trying to admit the patient, if they really are homebound, they really do need care. They really did do, you know, have a wound that needs care. How do we, you know, how do we sell ourselves enough that we can make sure we get that patient admitted? And if, if not, then what are we doing to follow back up on those? And so there's a lot of agencies out there that once the patient's not admitted, they didn't never call that patient again, or they never work with them again, or they never call their physician and say, Hey, Dr. Jones, Nana doesn't want to come on service. So she's going to end up back in a skilled nursing facility or back in the hospital. Because there's a reason you ordered uh, home health for her. Mm -hmm. So working on intex is a big deal. Um, another area that we're spending a lot of time on is time to the home. And so this is what I call after you get the patient through the referral process. So we do the eligibility check, we load their medications in, we get their H&P from the hospital. We're ready to go see that patient. How long does it take us to get a clinician out to that patient? And so everything we can do under a Six Sigma Lean project to remove barriers from that is super important. And I always put this one back to, it's my Nana sitting in a rocking chair at the house who just had hip replacement surgery and the home health agency um, is not able to admit the patient. You know, it's Friday till next Tuesday. So what is Nana gonna do on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday? She's gonna be in pain, she's gonna be upset, she's gonna be dissatisfied. And so I, I know that's not across the norm, but when you start looking at this as a metric, this number continues to grow. And I know it's because of the labor shortages. It's not because anybody doesn't wanna go see Nana. But how do we figure out how to take those barriers out of the way? Because by the way, if you're not admitting Nana, somebody else is going to admit Nana. And so if, if another home health agency is rushing out there and, and, and to admit Nana and you're two or three days later, they probably already got her on service. So we spent all this effort, all this time, all this money trying to get a sales rep to go get collector referral. We got it done, but we didn't get a clinician out in the home quick enough. So we missed that patient. And so this time in the home, time to the home, is an area that we're spending a lot of time studying. We can look at your data, then we can dive into the data, then we can start, you know, picking out factors of why this is happening. And so speed to, speed to admission is important, not only for the patient, but for the agency. Orders management is another area that we're spending a lot of time on, is the number of orders that are being written for home health patients and then being refaxed to the doctor and then refaxed again. So usually multiple times during the episode, we're faxing these orders. And then, um, you know, we're, we're wondering why our DSOs are increasing. Well, the, one patient may have 10 orders, and if we refax that to the doctor, you know, two times each, so now we have, let's call it 20 pages uh, worth of orders we're looking for signatures on. And then, um, you know, we still have the, the 485 and the starter care. And so if you really look at, is it appropriate to write that order? Does it have to go to the physician under the regulations? And if it does, how do we make sure we consolidate orders into a supply order, a med order, and a, and a visit change order? into one order. Um, by default, most of the EMRs have this set to yes, send to the physician. And what we find is it's creating a, a lot of frustration with home health because the physician doesn't want to sign 20 pieces of paper after he already told you to admit that patient. Although by law, he has to sign them if we can minimize the number of orders that are written 
and minimize the number of times that we or pages that we request a physician to sign, we think there's a lot of opportunity there. So orders management, by the way, if you if doc signs them, you have to load them back in the software. So now you got to go in and process, you know, those same amount of orders. And so just really focusing and being intentional around orders management is super important. I'm gonna have two more that we'll talk about sales productivity um, and home health. You've earned these stars. You're a four star agency. Start telling everybody about them and then start looking at your competitors and saying, hey, I'm a four star. I've adopted technology. I'm on pulse. I've optimized my organization. I get there faster than anybody else. I provide better care. I've got great star ratings. How do I go find the agencies that don't have good star ratings that haven't done all those things? And how do I start using that as a tool to go and sell? Um, I call it the pumpkin spice latte. I hear it all the time. I've actually sat in doctor's offices personally and watched the number of home health agencies that walk in the front door. It's amazing how many people bring in a pumpkin spice latte. Really what I want you to bring in there is here's the data. Here's why we're better. Here's the, our outcomes. Here's how we got to a four-star or five-star agency. This is why you need to refer patients to us. And here's what those stars mean. By the way, doctors have stars, hospitals have stars, facilities have stars. They're not the same stars. They understand the rating system. I think Uber caused that, but everybody understands the rating system, but what does it take to be a three and a half, four star, five star agency? And make sure you're explaining that. And then go use the tools that are out there to identify who's not a five star agency, who's not a four star agency in your community and where their referrals are coming from. And let's go have those conversations. If your goal is to be the best and grow your organization, how do we make sure that your salespeople are calling on the right doctors, one that love home care, that love hospice, but also understand the, the power of the star rating so you're getting good quality patients. So spending time with the sales team, making sure that they have productivity, making sure that they're calling on the right uh, physicians where they actually have an opportunity to gain a referral is super important. And the last one I'll just talk about is recruiting. And recruiting comes from a culture inside your organization. Are you spending enough time training your staff? Do they understand their job? Do they understand the roles of their job? When you come back to the centralization process that we're building, if I'm an expert in intake and the best at intake, I'm gonna do that job faster. If my job is intake and orders management and workflow and uh, non-visit uh, non time approval and supply management and medication management, it's hard for me to be the best at all those things. And so there's probably a gap in training. And, and so then I'm not gonna be as satisfied with my job, but I'm not trying to make everybody just a, you know, assembly line worker, but if I know everything about intake and I'm really good at intake, I'm gonna be able to do a lot more intakes than the person sitting next to me who's less trained. And so we think that recruiting and retention of your staff is super important. How do I go find the right caregivers? How do I make sure that the caregivers are trained appropriately? But as, as important as how do I find the right people in the back office if I'm doing these centralized processes to make sure that they're trained appropriately and make sure that they understand the impact of why. And, and this is a thing we talk about all the time. Why is this important? Why is it really important for you to get this eligibility right? Why is it really important for you to make sure that you get that starter care nurse to that patient's home as quick as possible? And I think once we train people on the why, they really understand their job a lot better. So that's it for me today. Jennifer, anything to add before we, uh, before we um, no, I mean, I think all of these, uh, the components that we've talked about today are holistically impactful to the, the bottom line, to the quality of care, to the future of healthcare, right? So, you know, this isn't something that, you know, we say, take it all on today, take it all on tomorrow. It's something that needs to be implemented over time. It needs to be intentional. It needs to be strategic. 
You need to find a partner in the space that has the time to dedicate to the project management of this without a project manager that is completely dedicated to actually putting these pieces and parts together. The success of the overall optimization, back office, uh, field staff, and um, the centralization, it can be definitely a wash. We've seen that a lot. And so being intentional, having somebody to commit the time and the effort towards it, as well as being strategic and supporting the staff along the way, giving them the who, what, when, where, why, as well as the automation tools to be able to do their job better, be able to spend more quality time at the bedside is gonna be 110% extremely important as we go forward and see what is gonna happen after, uh, as we hit mid 2023 and the next rule. Yeah, thank you guys for your business. Those of you that are our customers, we really appreciate you being our being our customer and believing in what Maxwell does. If you're not our customer and you want to talk to some of our references, we're really proud of all of our customers that are, that are happy to be references. Um, we're happy to set you up with those. Um, you know, our goal is to change healthcare, uh, home healthcare, and hospice care, um, and impact what you guys do every day. We know it's hard. We know it's uh, uh, very challenging. Our goal is to help you be the best home care and hospice provider uh, in the industry. So appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. Love to get your feedback. Uh, please. Tell us you want more of this, less of this. Uh, if you have questions or concerns or comments, love to hear about every single one of them. Uh, um, we're here to support you, and that's why we're that's why we're in business. That's why we do this every day. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the MHA Corner podcast. Have questions for Jennifer and Tom? Need further guidance on the final rule? Contact us at sales at maxwellhca.com to schedule some time. Until we speak again.